I want to start off this morning. Has anyone ever been on a subway where you're walking through the subway station and you're seeing like musicians playing? Have you ever experienced that before, right? And so I want to start off with a story from that right here. So listen to this. This is written by a guy who was from the Washington Post, and he talks about this. He says, he emerged from the metro at the L'Enfant Plaza station and positioned himself against a wall beside a trash basket. By most measures, he was, a, he was nondescript, a youngish white man in jeans, a long-sleeved t-shirt, and a Washington Nationals baseball cap. From a small case, he removed a violin. Placing the open case at his feet, he shrewdly threw in a few dollars in pocket change as seed money, swiveled it to face pedestrian traffic, and began to play. In the next 43 minutes, as the violinist performed six classical pieces, 1,097 people passed by. Each passerby had a quick choice to make, one familiar to commuters in any urban area where the occasional street performer is part of the cityscape. Do I stop and listen, or do I hurry past with a blend of guilt and irritation? You know, annoyed by the unbidden demand on your time, in your wallet? Do you throw in a buck just to be polite? Or does your decision change if he's really bad? Well, what if he's really good? And so on that Friday in January, those private questions would be answered in an unusually public way. No one knew it, but the fiddler standing against a bare wall outside the metro in an indoor arcade at the top of the escalators was one of the finest classical musicians in the world, playing some of the most elegant music ever written on one of the most valuable violins ever made. And so the violinist's name was Joshua Bell. He's a famous violinist, and he was playing on an 18th century Stradivari violin. And so here he is in the metro station playing this violin where literally three days before he was playing in Boston Symphony Hall where just good seats were going for $100 a seat. And how many people gave? 27. 27 people gave money totaling 32 whole dollars and some change. And it was, so when I read this story, one of the things that really stood out to me is how often in our lives we can pass by things of beauty and we just never stop to even notice those things at all. You know, I was convicted of this one time when I was reading about just looking for God in the everyday little things of our life and how I was convicted, how I never even stopped to look at that. And how often in Scripture we'll read about the beauty of Jesus and we never really stop to appreciate who he was and what he came to do. And so we often pass by, too, blindly over these gifts that we see. Have you guys ever had a conversation with someone before? We are talking to them, and you're sharing about Christ, you're sharing about Jesus, you're talking about God, and they're saying things like, yeah, but what about the person in Siberia who's never heard before? What about this person in the jungles of, of South America and the jungles of Africa and they've never heard before? What about them? And oftentimes, the question that we need to ask people in that situation is, don't worry about them. The question is, who do you say Jesus is? 
Because that's the real question. Most people will use those arguments, not because there's a concern for people in South America, but because they're trying to find a way to say, I don't want to believe. And so if I look at God and realize that God is not a loving God because he doesn't care about them and he's not fair, then I'm not going to believe. But the question that stands there for every single one of us is this. Who do you say Jesus is? Because that is the most important question that stands for all of us. And so people's response to that question has many implications for the rest of their lives. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. The big idea is this. It's Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah. He is the rock upon which the church is built. Jesus as the Messiah. And so we're going to look and see how we as the church, not the building, but the body of believers, are the ones that continue in the building of this body of believers too. And so if you can open up your Bibles, we're going to look at Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20. Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20. And we'll have it up on the screen too. We do have Bibles up here and in the back also for you to use. Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20. And let me, uh, let's just pray. Father, we thank you for this time. And we just pray, Lord, that you would open up our eyes and open up our heart to hear from you today, Lord. What is it that you want us to see? And most importantly, not just see, but to help us, God, to help these truths come alive in our life and help us to live uh, with these truths in mind, Father. And we ask this and pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right. Verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And others, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So here they are. They're in a district called Caesarea Philippi. It is a Gentile area. And so here they are in this place right now. It's interesting because Jesus is asking this question amidst the backdrop of so many different things that people can choose from to believe in. And he asks his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, he knows the answer to the question. But he's asking the question because he's trying to open up their eyes. And so what do they say? Well, some say you're John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the current prophet at the time. He was teaching national repentance telling people to turn away from your sin and turn toward the Messiah because he's here. So some think that you're John the Baptist. They say, well, others, they say you're Elijah. Elijah was a prophet that worked miracles. Jesus is doing miracles. So some think you're Elijah because the thought was that Elijah was going to return before the Messiah came. So some think you're Elijah. Well, others say you're Jeremiah, one of the prophets who were teaching and who were national reformers. And Jesus, so Jesus is saying, okay, that's what they say. Now, who do you say I am? Think about today. I mean, it's the same thing that we see today. What do people say about Jesus 
today. What are some things that they say about Jesus? They call him a what? Moral teacher. Jesus is a moral teacher. What else? Hmm? He's a counselor. What else? Some say he's a prophet. What else? He's a good person. He shows us what it's like to be a good person, right? And so we see all these answers that we give today about who Jesus is. Here's the thing that they all have in common. All deny Jesus as being divine. He's everything but God. He is everything but God. All of them show him some respect or honor, but they fall short for who he really is and what he even said about himself. And so you see that. There's a view about who Jesus is. And the funny thing is, Jesus never corrects the disciples. He wants them to understand what the view of him is. And so now he says, well, who do you say that I am? Who's the first person that answers? Are you surprised? Are you surprised that Peter is the one that blurts out? And what does Peter say? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. What he's literally saying is, you are the anointed one. You are the Messiah. You are the one that was supposed to come, and you are the Son of the living God. We are, he is attributing deity to Jesus. And what does Jesus say in return? Blessed are you. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. Jesus is joyful. Why? Because he's telling him is, you did not figure this out on your own. You didn't wake up one day and say, you know, I think today is the day. You know, I recognize who Jesus is. You didn't figure it out on your own. In order for you to understand this, God has to literally open up your eyes because you are blind to who Jesus really is. And what he's telling Simon is, Blessed are you, because my Father has opened up your eyes. It's interesting. We know him as Peter. His name was Simon. Simon Bar-Jonah literally means Simon, son of your dad, your earthly dad, Jonah. Blessed are you, because my heavenly Father and your heavenly Father has opened up your eyes to show you who I really am. That's what Jesus is telling him right there. Blessed are you if you understand that. What an amazing confession during this time. Because it was only a few chapters before where John the Baptist himself said, he sent his disciples to Jesus and said to them, ask him if he's the one, if there's another one we should be waiting for. And he's telling him is, blessed are you because you get it. And you didn't figure it out on your own. My father had to open up your eyes to who he is. They were looking for a military king. They were looking for something to free them from the Roman oppression. And he's like, your eyes have been opened up to the truth of who I really am. There's a 17th century uh, or 18th century pastor. His name is Jonathan Edwards. Anybody ever heard him before? Listen to what he says. He has a sermon and it's called the Divine and Supernatural Light. And he says, in our fallen humanity, we are blind to the truths of God. And unless God, this Holy Spirit, opens up our spiritual eyes, we cannot see the loveliness of Christ. If we think of Jesus as a good man or a prophet, we are blind. 
If we think of Jesus as a good man or a prophet, we are blind. Here is the first application. It's only God that can open up our eyes to who Jesus really is. And so what he's doing with his disciples, he's doing a compare and contrast. What do they say? Okay, now what do you say? And he's like, blessed are you that you can confess that because you didn't figure it out on your own. The heavenly father had to open up your eyes to do that. And he's like, man, the joy with that. The joy in knowing that. Man, what does it look like in our life? Well, I want to give you guys an example of what this looks like. I told the last group, the Lord has impressed it upon my heart. He says, I want you to choose the worst sinner in your congregation. I have not come up here right now. So Paul Lee, come up here. <laughs> I love Paul, man. Paul knows that, right? <laughs> Paul, we have a lovely prize for you afterwards, yeah, too. Sure. So. <laughs> <clears throat> Man, so what, what is going on in our lives right now? Well, you remember last week when Scott Jackson was preaching, he was like, literally, there's only two choices you can go in life. There's only two ways you can go. Either you're going that way away from Christ, or you're going that way toward the cross. And you see it that way. And so Paul represents us. Because in our lives, we just live our lives as normal, right? We get up, we go to work, we go to the gym, we do what we got to do, we take care of our kids. Paul is blind to what's going on really in life. He is spiritually blind. So when, when uh, the Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians, he's like, you are dead. Dead people, and I'm going out on a limb here, dead people can't do anything. They can't think. They can't open up their eyes. They have no power in themselves. And so the Apostle Paul says, we are spiritually dead to what is really going on in life and in the world. We are following the normal course of the world. And so Paul lives every day this way right here. But then something begins to click. Paul begins asking questions in his life and begins thinking about things and asking things that he never did before. Have you ever experienced that before where somebody comes to you and says, do you mind if I go to church with you? Or, can you pray for me? And you're like, okay. I was out the blue. Why? Because something begins to happen in his life where the light begins to just glow just a little bit. Why? Is he having a spiritual awakening? No. The Holy Spirit literally comes upon Paul and begins to move in him till he begins to ask questions and think of things that he never did before. I remember this time in my life where I began to do that. I never had an interest in God. I wanted nothing to do with Christ. I was the one that said Jesus was a good person that taught us how to live a good life. But beyond that, he was nothing else, right? I wasn't hearing the phone ring in my life to who Jesus was, right? But my eyes became to be open a little bit. And what happens in our lives now, we begin to see that there's another way. I see the cross. And so what we literally do is we have to turn away from our path that we were taking. We turn away from our sin and we turn toward Christ. It's a changing of mind. This is what repentance means. It's a turning away. Now, does repentance save Paul? No. That's not what saves Paul. But the Lord has opened up his eyes to where he realizes that that way is sinful, and that's walking away from God. And now he sees the cross, and he sees what Jesus did to the point where Paul begins to say is, 
I think I need that. I think I need what Jesus Christ did because I see myself now as sin. That was his normal life before. He now looks at that and says, that was sin. And I've been living apart from God. And now when he sees what Christ does on the cross, his death and resurrection, Paul's like, I think I need that for myself. And literally Paul gets on his knees and he says, I bow to you now, Lord. I need a Savior because I've been living my whole life apart from you. And Paul, in faith, asked Christ to be his Lord and Savior because he needs forgiveness of his sins. He doesn't do anything. He looks at that and says, I need help. And he asks Christ. Faith is literally asking Jesus, I need your help for what you did on the cross. And from the moment he asks Christ for salvation, the Holy Spirit literally comes upon Paul. He takes a robe and he puts Christ's righteousness on Paul. And so the father no longer sees Paul as a sinner trying to be better. He sees his own son. That's what he sees. And so now Paul lives knowing that his father is not angry with him when he sins. He's not going to take away his salvation. What he sees is his own son, so he doesn't have to try to be a good person anymore. He lives his life knowing that he sees, the father sees his only son. Thank you, Paul. Paul Hand. The only way that Paul can do that is God has to open up his eyes. And it's very humbling when you realize that the only way that you could even turn is because the Father had to open up your eyes. You didn't figure it out on your own. And so what Jesus is telling his disciples, blessed are you when you can look at that and say, you are the Messiah because you didn't figure it out on your own. Christ, God had to do that for you. And so what happens now? Jesus says, here's what I'm going to do based upon that confession. Verse 18, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Jesus is now saying, here's what I'm about to do. I am going to build a community of believers, of people who confess that I am the Messiah. I'm going to build a church. And Jesus being the cornerstone of that church. What is a cornerstone? A cornerstone is the first stone set in the construction of a masonry foundation. And it's important since all the other stones will be set in reference to that stone, thus determining the position of the entire structure. Go back hundreds of years, and in the Psalms, the author writes, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Talking about Jesus. Jesus is the cornerstone of the church as Messiah. And now what he's saying is he's going to build his church by laying the other stones, building upon the cornerstone. And so what he says to Peter is, you are Peter, Petra, rock. You are a little rock. And it's on that confession that you made that I am the Christ that I'm building my church. Now, that particular verse is actually the cause of a lot of controversy because when you go in the Catholic church, what do they say? They say that Peter is the one that Jesus was saying that the church is going to be built upon you so that all the popes are descendants of who? The first pope, which they say is Peter. 
But we have reason to believe what Jesus is actually referring to is saying, you are Peter, little stone. You are being built upon the big stone, which is him as Messiah. That's how he's going to build his church. <coughs> now, why is that important today? Keith, stop causing trouble, right? Why is this important? Because I'm telling you is how often do we go to places and they say that we are a church, yet they don't look at Jesus as being divine. Jesus isn't divine. He's a good person. They don't look at Scripture as being an errand. And so they're saying that they're a church. What Jesus is telling you is, I myself am building a community of believers. And the community is based upon the fact that they confess that I am the Christ. Why? Because my Father has opened up their eyes. That's what the church is. That's what the church is. And so the church are people that know Jesus as Messiah, people whose confidence is in Jesus. Why? Because he says, the gates of hell will not prevail. What do you mean? It cannot stop the advance of this kingdom or proclaim victory over anybody who confesses that I'm the Christ. And lastly, what he says to Peter is, and now I'm giving you the kingdom, the keys to the kingdom. Literally, Peter is responsible for who can enter and who doesn't enter. Not because Peter has some power where he can stop people, because what he says to him is, you proclaiming the gospel is how people come in. And when they reject the gospel, they don't come in. Jesus is laying it all out right there. He's like, this is what the church is going to be about. And I'm giving it to you. What he's doing is he's handing over the keys to the disciples. And he's saying, now it's going to be built upon your testimony as rocks. And so we believe based upon what they say about Jesus. And so we are also rocks that are being built. And he's building this whole structure of the church based upon that. And what he says to Peter is, whatever you bind... On earth, we've already been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Binding and loosing are legalistic terms, in, in Jewish legalistic terms. To bind something means to, 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 to prevent it, to stop, or it's unlawful. To loose it is to allow it, and it's legal, it's lawful. And he's saying, whatever you do here on earth will have already been done out there. God is basically giving them the ability to do his will on earth. That's how the church was going to start. That's what we continue today. So when you open up the Bible and you read the Bible and you see what Peter and Paul and you see what these guys have written, they're just doing God's will. And we are following what they have done because Jesus is giving it into their hands right now. That's the second application. Is what we do is we join in what they have been given. Christ is the cornerstone the apostles are the rocks that are built upon that cornerstone. And then we continue to build the church as stones on top of that too. This is why Peter, when he writes his letter, he says, Coming to him, Jesus, as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And at the end of it all, what Jesus says is, don't tell anyone that I am the Christ. Why? 
because his time hadn't come yet. His time had not come yet. Jesus, because they knew that they would take him and try to make him a king. What was Jesus' time? He was coming to give his life. Understand this. As we celebrate Christmas and we see the birth of Jesus as a baby, he came for one reason only, to die. He came to give his life as a sacrifice. And the reason why we can call him a savior is because if our problem was that we needed to follow a few rules to fix ourselves up, then that's what would have happened. But you only send a savior if you cannot save yourself. And so what God was saying is, you can't save yourself. So I'm coming to do it for you. Christ came and he gave his life. This is what it is. You've got two books. This is a book with Jesus' name on it that has perfectly clean. This is a book with our name on it. It's got everything that you've ever done in your life, everything you've ever thought, everything that you've ever said. And what God does, he takes your name, puts it on this book. He takes Jesus' name, puts it on this book, and then he crushes this book. That's what he did on the cross. That's what he did on the cross. And so what Jesus is saying is, the fact that you can call me Messiah, and you can recognize who I am, rejoice. Because your Father opened up your eyes for you to be able to say that. And this is how I'm building my church. It's a community of people who look at that and confess that I am the Messiah. And I'm building upon that. That's how I'm building my church, my community of believers. And so what does that mean for us? Number one, understand and take joy. If you confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and as Messiah, rejoice because you didn't figure it out on your own. He had to open up your eyes. That's the love that he has for you, that he did not want you to continue to walk spiritually dead, that he is chasing after you to open up your eyes to your need for a Savior. And secondly, we build off of Christ. Christ is the cornerstone. His death, his resurrection as Messiah, nothing less. The apostles have built upon that as stones, and we too join in the building of the church. What does that mean? I'm telling you right now, all of you will experience at some point somebody who begins asking questions. Do you mind praying for me? Can I come to church with you? And we begin to invite them into what? The community of believers of people who confess that Christ is the Lord and Savior, and he is the Messiah that was promised. And so now the question is the same for us. Jesus says, you know what everybody else says, but who do you say that I am? Because what you confess and what your answer is will determine who you follow. Let's pray.